Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Glenn McConnell. Today I've got Professor Paige Geiger from the University of Kansas Medical Center. We're discussing all things heat. So heat therapies, the effect of that on your insulin sensitivity, on other chronic diseases, um, comparing and contrasting the effects of heat, which raises your core body temperature, to exercise, which also raises your core temperature. So you know how much of the effects of exercise are due to the heat. We talked a bit about mechanisms. So for example, the heat shock proteins that appear to be important, how much heat you need for how long and how often, and what's the washout rate. Um, we discussed, you know, is it possible we're just living in too much of a comfortable environment? You know, it's always plus or minus one degree Celsius. Is that possibly detrimental to our health? People have been saying saunas are good for you for hundreds of years. I guess the science is only now catching up. It's a really interesting area and it's clear there's lots more work to be done. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Hello, Paige. Welcome to Inside Exercise. How are you? Hi, great. Good to see you. Yeah, good. I was just thinking, I reckon Paige Geiger is a really cool name. <laughs> Something about that. Yeah. yeah, maybe. I don't know. Lots of lots of vowels in that name. Lots of vowels. I guess Paige is not really a name we hear down here, down under. So yeah, so it's the morning here, 7 a.m. What's it for you over there? You're About 4 o'clock. O'clock, and you're in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Kansas. That's Kansas right. Kansas. All right. Okay. So, how did you actually get into this? I mean, some of the people I've had on, quite a lot of them actually, you know, were, were formerly athletes, sports people, whatever. And then other ones obviously started off scientists and then went into exercise science. How did it work for you? Yeah. So, I definitely come from that exercise camp of being an athlete. I was a rower in college and always been a runner. Um, went into graduate school and studied muscle physiology. Um, but when I was finishing my postdoc with John Halsey at WashU, I think I was, a, you know, his 80-somethingth postdoc. And so at the time, thinking about what could be an original line of research coming out of that group of, of fantastic scientists, uh, it, was, it was tough to come up with something that hadn't been done and that was original and that was really exciting. And so uh, I came across a review article that Phil Cooper from um, Colorado had written, and Phil was a physician out of Denver who, he told me when I met him later in life that he was bored with his private practice at the time, and he just decided, what would happen if you put a bunch of people with type 2 diabetes into a hot tub for several weeks? And, and so he did just that, wrote up a small paper on it, um, managed to get it published in the New England Journal, and he... He put these people in the hot tub for three weeks uh, and didn't change their diets, didn't change their activity levels or their any kind of medications. And at the end of the three weeks, uh, they had improved blood glucose and lowered HbA1c levels. And so he, at the time, thought that was due to improved blood flow. Uh, but he went on to speculate that maybe heat shock proteins, which were activated with the heat, had some role in preventing oxidative stress and inflammation that, that we know can interfere with insulin action. And so at the time I was looking specifically at insulin signaling pathways in muscle and oxidative stress and things like that. And so, I don't know, it just seemed like the, um, a, an avenue of research that I could pick up and, and get started and, and just seemed really interesting to me at the time. Well, that, that's, that's an amazing story. And the, the, the thing, well, actually a couple of things, it reminds me of myself when I finished my PhD, so it's a bit earlier, I was with Mark Hargraves at Melbourne University, and he was the big name in carbohydrate metabolism. So I'm like, what am I going to do now? So I was literally looking through the Journal of Applied Physiology. So that is stressful. I, <laughs> I think you'll vouch for that. And you've obviously come up with a great thing there. But the Phil Hooper thing as well, that's an amazing story. Um, yeah, 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 it was really, I mean, and what's interesting about the field, Glenn, is that I think, you know, that Phil's paper came out in 1999 where he did this small little study and put these people in the hot tub and, you know, and I was starting my research lab in 2005, so not too long after that. Yeah. But the field, instead of going to everyone get in a hot tub, this is the cure-all, the field really went to what are heat shock proteins doing? What are the cellular processes? What are animal models that animal we can models. use to, to study this? And really, it wasn't until 2015 when Chris Minson from the University of Oregon put the published his first study looking at hot water immersion in young, healthy uh, college students, probably uh, from around campus, that that people are now everyone is turning to look at, at using this intervention in people. But but really, there's been 
almost two decades worth of work done at the cellular and basic that level. That's really interesting because I actually first heard about this because being in Australia, you know, Mark Fabreo had done his studies with wrapping up, you know, rats and, and mice and, and, you know, in heat vests and whatever and, and looking at the heat. I actually thought that was the, the first. And then I realized later that Phil Hooper had put his people with type 2 diabetes in there. And to be honest, I didn't know where you fitted. I was like, hang on, didn't Mark Fabreo already do that? But it was actually the other way around, yeah? So that that's that's interesting that, that yeah, so if we just step back and back, because I just think I met Phil Hooper at a conference and one stage we were talking about collaborating with nitric oxide and seeing if that was playing a role. I just think that's amazing that because he said, as you, as you mentioned, he was just bored, he's a GP and he funded his own studies. He said he never got a cent for this. He would just put his own money into it and do the studies, yeah. which was just pretty amazing, right? And he's, and he's so enthusiastic and all that, so. Um, yes, he is. And I'm really glad that I didn't know all that when I based my entire research program on those couple of papers. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, because yeah. if you think about it, you know, the papers that you write, sometimes you feel like these small studies go out into the void and you don't know who reads them or what the impact is, you know, but, you know, it's it was the start of my entire, you know, independent research career was based on some of his ideas. And then, you know, there's been many more since then. So, yeah, you just never know where your study's going to land. It's worked out well, obviously. I'm just interested, though, like, how did he even, I don't know, I need to get Phil Hooper on here. How did he even have the idea initially, do you know? Like, is it because people near the equator have better insulin sensitivity? Like, what was the idea even that get getting hot? Throwing, why do you even think to throw people in a hot tub is what I'm getting at? Well, according to Phil, he was sitting in a hot tub, literally, when he got the idea. Okay. And I think Phil is one of these people that's sort of like a know-all Renaissance man type, you know. So he wow. started thinking about how heat has been used for centuries. You know, it's really an ancient approach to health, yeah. uh, thermal spas and things like that. So I think that's where he started and, and just thought, well, maybe blood flow, improving blood flow with heat could clear glucose. I think it was just that simple. Okay. All right. So we'll talk about that later that, that you know, that it's probably more the heat shock proteins as you touched on. But that's interesting. So just stepping back a bit even is... Is there evidence? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know any of this. So if you're closer to the equator or like in summer versus winter, is there any evidence that insulin sensitivity is you know, different? I don't know. No. And this is an interesting aspect of this whole story is that if it is truly heat shock proteins or some sort of heat induction response that is beneficial in terms of metabolism and other chronic diseases, then people, the basic or sort of constitutive level of these pro proteins may be higher in people that live in warmer climates, but you still have to activate these systems. So heat shock proteins have this whole uh, feedback uh, inhibition, like most systems in our cells and our bodies. So if they've been activated, then they get turned off. So someone living in a warm climate is, is going to be protected from constantly having these heat shock proteins activated. And so they adjust. And so there's really got to be a stimulus, much like an exercise stimulus, to get these heat shock proteins to have these beneficial yeah. effects. Well, I guess if we just step back a bit. So we're talking about, I guess, the mechanisms there. But just, just purely, like, if you're near the equator or in summer, is there any evidence that you're more insulin sensitive, for example? Or is that not really no. something? No. Okay, all right. So, okay, so let's talk about these heat shock proteins, because it'd be new to some people. So naturally you think of it and you go, okay, heat shock. So if I, if I have a really high heat, it's a shock to my body and these proteins turn on or something like that. Is that, I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about these heat shock proteins? How, um, you know, they've been around, obviously they've been around forever, but are they the same in different species and, you know, things like that? Yeah, so they're very highly conserved. And like most great things in science, they were found by accident. So someone accidentally turned the incubator up too high in a plate of cells and found <laughs> these proteins that got, you know, expressed. Uh, and so that's how they were discovered. And that's honestly, that's sort of why they're misnamed a little bit as heat shock proteins. Um, it turns out they're actually activated by all kinds of stressors. They could be just called stress proteins. Uh, they're activated by shear stress, by changes in pH, 
apply UV light, all kinds of things, um, and not just heat, but that's how they were first discovered. So they're in all systems of the body, they're in all different organisms, and they really are ubiquitous, and they're, they're meant to be a cellular defense mechanism. So they help primarily folding proteins, uh, misfolded proteins in stress conditions, but more and more research has shown they also have a lot of cell signaling mechanisms as well. And that's where our interest in, in metabolism is really started with what can they do in terms of interacting with proteins that we know are important for insulin signaling? Uh, and, and more recently, what do they do in mitochondrial function as well? Right. Okay. And that, that was one of your early studies. Well, actually, I don't know if it was early or not, but one of your studies, so you put rats on a high fat diet, they became insulin resistant. You, um, why don't you tell me what you did? Yeah, yeah, and that's actually, Mark Fibrio's lab did that as well. They did that before us, and yes, if so if you put uh, mice or rats on a high-fat diet, you know, give them sort of this diabetic state, uh, six, six weeks or so, feeding them a 40 to 60% high-fat diet, they become insulin resistant. And what we initially did was, if we put the rats and mice in a water bath, so we have our little mini rodent hot tub in the lab where we put them waist down in, in the water, hot water. Um, if we just do that once a week for 20 minutes, we can completely prevent the effects of that six week high fat diet, wow. both in terms of glucose uptake in the muscle, uh, mitochondrial function and different insulin sensitive tissues like the fat and the liver as well. Wow, so that's just one 20 minute bout. Okay. Yeah, I like I always tell my students it'd be similar like if you ate at McDonald's a high you know Western diet you know high fat every day fast food for you know every meal of the day and then just sat in the hot tub twenty minutes once a week that's basically what we did with these rats so it's pretty it's pretty potent effect. So I guess I mean okay sometimes with rodent studies and things they make it a bit extreme you know like I, I always remember the studies where they looked at exercise and they did swimming and they did five hours of swimming with a with a weight on their tail and you say well that's not particularly you know likely that people are going to do obviously we don't have the tail but so how hot did you make them is it something that we would you know human would never tolerate or not really so the rodent studies we uh, we actually increased the body temperature quite. Uh, up to 41 degrees and going from, you know, 37 to 41. Um, the, the critical temperature that we've been using in humans and that other labs have been using is raising core body temperature one degrees Celsius. So that's really... Degree. Okay. Because yeah. 37 to 41 in a human, that would be very uncomfortable. But one yeah. degree is not that bad. Well, how bad is it's that? It's uncomfortable. It's, it's, a, it's yeah, uncomfortable. Exactly. If I, if I put you in our hot tub, Glenn, and made you sit there for the 40, 30 to 40 minutes, which is about what we do now, you would be uncomfortable, but most people adjust very quickly. After several, two to three visits, people are very comfortable with it, and they really don't mind it very much. Well, that's the thing I was thinking, because it, at first you think one degree isn't that much, but we're so good at thermoregulating, you know, like it it's actually takes quite a lot to get up by one degree because you know you get all your peripheral effects and everything to actually get the core up is uncomfortable and I think we all know uh, maybe I'm super susceptible to it but if I have a, a bath if I have it even slightly hot it, it's not fun yeah so, you get uncomfortable yeah. that's what I tell everyone is you know when you've been everyone's been in the hot tub for a little too long and you start to get uncomfortable in our studies that's you have to stay past that point and you actually, your body does start to adjust, but our immediate response is, oh, I, this is stressful or this is uncomfortable. I need to remove myself from this setting, right? And I think for some, this is completely anecdotal, but I think athletes are used to pushing past yeah. that, that point of discomfort, you know, in a way. And, and it's similar to that feeling of being in the heat. You get uncomfortable, but you can do it. Well, I was actually just thinking that's a, that's a beautiful thing because obviously we're all into exercise. I remember the studies we did where we had fluid ingestion, no fluid ingestion or whatever. It actually didn't matter the first 30 minutes, whether you drank fluid or not, the body temperature always went up by one degree. It was always about one degree it went up. And then if you drank, you know, it would, it would tend to plateau out. And then if you didn't, whatever. So that's interesting. So with exercise, you're not even that, okay, you might be uncomfortable in other ways, but, you know, you could have a trained person they're cruising for 30 minutes and their temperature's up on one degree. So I guess the question there is, 
um, you know, how much of the responses during exercise are heat shot protein related and how much are unrelated and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I love that question because I think everything is heat shock proteins, right? So oh, yeah. obviously they're not, but I do think that maybe many of the adaptations that or the benefits of exercise could come from heat proteins. So, you know, we've shown that they can improve mitochondrial function uh, on the, you know, uh, we've shown that they can decrease pathways of inflammation and things like that. And there's actually a lot of people studying sort of heat shock proteins and post-exercise recovery. So whether or not a, a, a pre-exercise heat bout, because you would induce those heat shock proteins could then be protective against say eccentric exercise damage. Like those studies have been done. So I'm sorry. The studies have been done or haven't been done? They have been, yes. Okay. Well, maybe we'll get to it. Actually, I want to ask you about that now. So what did they find? So Yeah, so if, if you can decrease some of the markers of muscle damage, you know, creatine kinase, things like that, by that pre-induction with the heat shock proteins. But again, some of those were animal studies and whether or not those translate to, to you know, performance and things like that. I think there's still a lot to be done in that respect. Wow. Okay. Because that actually reminds me of, you know, preconditioning. They have a thing where right. they, yeah, why don't you just say that for a minute? Because I don't think I quite understand it, but I wonder if that could be heat shock proteins. Yeah. So you mean just like the idea of doing an exercise bout and, and turning on all those pathways. With, with and then... the heart, you know, they talk about um, oh. preconditioning with the heart. Is that? Yeah. 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 There's actually a lot of heat shock protein studies were originally done looking at cardiac studies and so looking at ischemia reperfusion and things like that and so yeah having an ischemia response turning on all those heat shock proteins and then letting them go and refold proteins and turn off inflammatory pathways was then protective so yeah I do think I do think there's multiple things going on there's sort of that preconditioning or protective effect before about but also benefits to the actual about itself whether we're talking heat or exercise during about wow okay so maybe heat shock proteins is regulating everything <laughs> no i mean i think i think we know that this is really co uh, complicated you know physiology going on with exercise and we also know this redundancy so in a couple, couple of the earlier podcasts we talked about for example during respiration you know you can remove some pathways and your respiration is still normal so i assume this redundancy but it is there so so with the exercise for example if you exercise and you manage to keep the temperature down, so just say you've got people exercising and they're in a cold tub or something, and you keep the temperature down, do they get less adaptations, less responses to the exercise? They, I don't know what some of the specific outcomes I'm trying to think in terms of, say, muscle damage or something like that, but I know that those studies have been done where they either you know, in a thermal neutral condition or something where temperature is controlled and you exercise, you still get a heat shock response. So because it's not, it's again, there's that misnomer. It's, they're turned on by other things besides just the heat. Well, that's a beautiful thing that fits perfectly in with the redundancy thing. So the heat shock proteins are important. And as you said, in humans, if it goes up, if your core temperature goes up by one degree, they turn on. But if you prevent that, is that what you're saying? Then, then it'll turn on due to the other factors. So like maybe the share stress, which is exactly. for the audience, which is, you know, the blood flow pulsating through the vessels. Um, I don't know, maybe the change in pressure during the contraction. I mean. Yeah, yeah. And mechanical stress to contraction, uh, changes in pH and all the types okay. of things that we know that occur with exercise in addition to that generation of heat. Wow. Okay. So pH is, is the acidity. Yeah. So, okay. So, so what about when you have all these things adding on, I guess? So if you have the, the, the pressure, the shear stress, the acidity, the temperature, do you get a greater activation of the heat shock proteins? I, you know, I've always wanted to do those studies and it's, it's like, I've never quite had enough hands to do them. I'd love to do sort of an isolated in vitro muscle prep that you can control the temperature and and use contraction plus and without heat and really get at sort of the molecular aspects of that. I, I think you, you would see an additive effect, but I don't know that those studies have been carefully done to this yeah. point. Well, I know there's a guy, Aaron Peterson, because uh, Victoria University I used to be at, but I'm still there, I'm emeritus professor. He was doing studies there. He was doing like, um, people were doing weights 
in like normal temperature and then doing weights in the heat chamber. So I guess that's the kind of additive, I think, uh, idea. So is there like an additive? So if you have the temperature plus the exercise versus temperature alone plus versus exercise alone, is there like an additive effect? I yeah. guess heat protein activation, but also on the adaptations maybe to the training or the improvements in the insulin sensitivity, for example. Yeah, I think I think the answer to that is yes. I think timing could be important though. Again, getting at that idea of if if you did the or the heat bout before exercise, for example, maybe you could get that additive effect. Um, you know, you may you may hit a ceiling if you're doing them at the same time in terms of just how much you can induce these different systems. Um, I think a lot of that we just haven't sussed out yet. Okay. One thing I can't help thinking about with, with heat is, you know, how much is going on, you know, which we've already touched on. So I remember one of the first things I learned as an undergrad, which was this Q10 effect. So, you know, with a uh, 10, 10 degree increase in temperature, you get a, a doubling of enzyme activity. And you say, well, that's actually not very relevant to exercise, for example. So for, for, with a one degree increase, you get a 10% increase in activity. But I, I wonder how much of, of that stuff is going on is, is maybe heat shot proteins, you know, it's affecting other things. Yeah, and I, you know, I, you're getting into the weeds a little bit on some, you know, some of these almost biochemical pathways that I don't want to insult yeah. someone who's already done that work and I'm not aware of it because there's a lot of work at the real basic biochemistry level on these heat shock proteins. They even, you know, they call them something different and, and, oh. and there's a lot of knowledge about yes. the way they fold and the way the temperatures impact their function and, enzyme activity and all of that. So I just, I, I think that you're probably onto something there in terms of how that could translate to exercise. But I think that those, the problem in the field is that the people that know the nitty gritty of that biochemistry of heat are not at all interested in the <laughs> translation to exercise or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. health. And so there's, it's this huge void of, of people that, that can't talk to each other really. So Okay, well, that's why I guess why we have collaborations, you yeah? know, bringing people together. All right, so I, I keep thinking about this, the, the heat versus the exercise thing, yeah? So is it the same? Because again, so much more is going on with exercise, right? You've got the heat, you've got all, all sorts of others, there's cardiac, cardiac output and, you know, metabolism. So for example, the muscle, if you heat the muscle or if you heat your body, the muscle's not doing anything and it's not turning over. So I just had John Hawley on, he was saying, you know, the, the difference with safe diet versus exercise with diet, you know, you're not turning over the substrates. So I guess it's the same with, with exercise you are. I guess it's the same with heat, you know, there's this different stuff going on with heat, you're not turning over anything in the muscle, but during exercise, you're turning over stuff, plus you've got the heat. So I guess it's, you start wondering, you know, are the responses similar? Are the same sort of heat shock proteins activated, whatever? So maybe just a bit of background there. Like when we say heat shock proteins, it's plural, right? There's more than one heat shock protein. So without going too deep into it, are the same heat shock proteins activated with exercise and heat? Do they overlap? Do they, do they are they additive? Are they synergistic? You know, whatever. That's a great question. <clears throat> and I don't know that exhaustive studies have been done well, in fact, I know exhaustive studies have not been done comparing heat and exercise. Um, uh, there are a family of heat shock proteins that, you know, run the gamut of size and molecular weight. We're primarily interested in the ones that are about 70 kilodaltons or 60 kilodaltons, heat shock proteins 70 and 60. They are highly inducible in the, the tissues that we're most interested with exercise, muscle, liver, fat, the brain, things like that. Um, I, they, I do know that they are induced and expressed to varying degrees in all these different tissues. So I do think that it's reasonable to expect that they will be, they would be induced differently in with heat versus exercise or in, you know, from tissue to tissue. So I think there's, there's a lot of nuance to how they respond to exercise. Uh, we do know quite a bit about, for example, just in skeletal muscle, they're more highly expressed in uh, slow twitch fibers. So yeah. muscle fibers that are more oxidative and have more mitochondria have more heat shock proteins, but the fast twitch fibers have a higher level of induction of the heat shock protein. 
So we've done some of those studies in my lab. And if we look at the comparison, the constitutive levels are higher in slow twitch fibers, but the induction is higher in the fast twitch. And so that that speaks to, you know, what are they what are they needed for? Um, maybe they need the fast twitch fibers um, need more heat shock proteins in response to exercise um, in terms of an activation mechanism versus what they're doing at a basal level. So, so maybe just to clarify that for some people, because you know, constitutive and things like that, some of those words. So you're basically saying the slow twitch muscle fibers, which are the ones that are more uh, um, important for endurance, they've already got like a bit of a high basal heat shock protein level. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe they don't get activated as much. So you don't get as much of an increase with the, the stimulus. But the fast which are lower, and then they've got, you know, more room to improve, I guess. So they get activated more. Is that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, again, just, I guess, getting back to, I was, I was thinking about the dose. So I'm, I'm going to caught up on that. So you're saying one 20 minute bout, but that's uncomfortable. Yeah. So, you know, for humans, the, the mice, whatever, it's like, sorry, but you just got to put up with it. Um, so I, I guess what would you suggest therefore, like, you know, one uncomfortable sit in the hot tub or, you know, a few, you know, sort of comfortable, I guess, I guess if they're not comfortable, they won't work. So how would you suggest practically people doing this? Yeah, well, so the 20 minutes is what we've done in the rodent studies. The human studies, uh, really, we've kind of based our work off of those original pilots that uh, Chris Minson and his group at Oregon did. And initially they actually used a really heavy hammer to make sure they saw something. They did like 90 minute bouts of heat. And in a, when I say heat for humans in a hot tub, we're talking 104 degree Fahrenheit, which is about as high as a commercial hot tub will go. And they were putting subjects in for 90 minutes in the 104 degree, which I have done. We did one study where for 90 minutes, it's really long, but it is, it is doable. Your skin, your, skin gets all wrinkled. your skin gets all wrinkled up. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Uh, they have since backed off of that. And his most recent studies have used more like a 40 to 45 minute protocol. And that's now what we are using in some pilots at my institution. And so the, the general gamut that we've been doing is getting in the hot tub and you, you get in and the water level is up to your shoulders. So it, it, allows you to warm up quicker and that takes about 15 to 20 minutes and that raises the core temperature that one degree and then you stay there for about 20 minutes at that elevated one degree core temperature but the we can bring the water level down and it's much more comfortable we, we sit people up higher we put a fan on them and and i stay like that for another 20 some minutes for a total of 45 minutes and so you're at that one degree about 20, 25 minute total of 45 minute bout. That's where we're at right now. And we're doing those about three times a week and trying to get to maybe um, Chris's group showed that, you know, 10 to 12 sessions is what's critical to sort of start seeing some of these effects on the peripheral, you know, blood pressure and things like that. Um, I'd love to see us kind of work backwards and, and figure out what the minimum level of heat is to see mm -hmm. some of these beneficial effects, but we're just not there yet. Right now we're still trying to figure out what we know works and then applying it to different patient populations and different uh, disease um, okay. conditions. I was, um, cause I remember re reading Phil Hooper's um, New England Journal of Medicine um, paper, which, which is, you know, again, it's just a classic. So get people with type two diabetes, put them in the hot tub. And then as you, as you said earlier, I think they had a lower HbA1c, which is the, the indicator that that um, you know that's sort of the last three months of glucose, the effects on the hemoglobin, uh, you know, lower fasting glucose, I think. But didn't he only do like sort of thirty minutes? Didn't he just do it comfortable, like just jumping in the hot tub? Did, but I think they did them every day also. So I think he did five days a week over three weeks, and we're doing every other day. And again, I think where the field is at right now is what is a beneficial dose and what is a uh, sustainable dose to get people to, exactly. to come in for these studies. Like it's pretty hard to get people to come in for an everyday study as uh, anyone that does exercise studies knows. So exactly. right now we're working with an every other and it seems very tolerable. And it also is, is showing the beneficial effects on cardiometabolic health that we're hoping to see. Okay, all right. 
And, you know, you've been an exercise person as well. Like I can't help thinking if I wanted to activate my heat shock proteins, why would I get in a hot tub and get all hot and then turn on a fan and all this sort of stuff? Why not just exercise? Um, you know, because you're getting the benefits of the exercise. And yeah, absolutely. Is that the way you're sort of thinking as well? Like, you know, hey, you guys, you can do it this way, but if you want, uh, not for your studies, obviously, because you've got to control it. But, you know, if you're just talking to your, your mum or your, your kids or whatever, would you say jump in the hot tub or would you say go and exercise? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great point. And, you know, this is an exercise podcast and I'm a, a diehard believer in the benefits of exercise. And I will always say, you know, exercise first. But, you know, the facts are that there are a lot of people that cannot do enough exercise to get the benefits. So whether it's age or another chronic disease, you know, you have to you have to really get your heart rate up to see some of the cardiovascular benefits. You have to be able to do this consistently. So I think that what I'm really excited about is that heat therapy could be the alternative for people that can't get the benefits of exercise. Fantastic answer. I was just I was thinking that's perfect because I'm thinking of able-bodied, you know, young or you no, know, whatever. Well, you don't have to be young to exercise, but not injured or whatever. And I also thought that's a beautiful answer. And I'm sure you've said that in grant applications as well. <laughs> I, and yeah, yeah. And yeah. in our in our pilot studies where we're trying to recruit people, you know, we're doing a study right now where we're recruiting individuals that are 65 and older that have some metabolic risk or metabolic history that puts them at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, that's a disease that is, is close to my heart. Uh, my mom has Alzheimer's disease. Uh -huh. And I mean, it's a whole nother concept to think how difficult it is to get people with dementia to get the exercise that we know is beneficial for them. Yeah. They don't understand why they should get on a treadmill. They don't, they don't remember from day to day that it's good for them. You know, so there's a lot of things that can keep people from getting the exercise that they need. And so, you know, sitting in a relaxing hot bath is something that is a little bit more palatable maybe for, for a lot of different populations. No, that's a great point. Sorry to hear about your mom, by the way. No, that's okay. Um, she's, she's still very active and healthy. Oh, good. Okay. But that's a good way to bring up these other, because I was thinking, I keep talking about insulin sensitivity. That's sort of my background. So so you just touched on some other things. So, so what are the other sort of chronic diseases and things that, that heat shock proteins do benefit? Well, I think we there's been not a lot of studies yet, but they're starting to increase. Um, so there's been some work looking at um, anything to do with, you know, blood flow, peripheral artery disease, things like that. Um, we know that there's very dramatic effects on blood pressure. So again, the Minson group has shown that eight weeks of heat treatment is, is just as effective in lowering blood pressure as eight weeks of aerobic exercise, at least in healthy young subjects. So there's a lot of potential there. Um, we've done some pilot studies looking at uh, the effects of heat on peripheral neuropathy, whether it's diabetes, or we've done a, uh, a study in patients with fibromyalgia, which is a population of people that are very young and have very limited options for any kind of therapeutic measures to, to help with the pain that they experience. So we've put those uh, individuals in hot tubs and it's been dramatic how much better they feel after several weeks of, of the heat. Um, they're more active, they sleep better, all kinds of things. So, yeah. you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface. And like I said, our interest in, in dementia and Alzheimer's disease is, has a metabolic slant to it. We think that lowering blood glucose and lowering um, uh, blood pressure in those individuals could be preventative for Alzheimer's disease because type two diabetes is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's. So it's still, I think most of the studies that are going now are still in the blood flow, cardiovascular metabolic health um, realm. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the studies coming, some of the retrospective studies, say looking at cultures like um, Nordic cultures, Finland, for example, has done some retrospective studies showing that people that use sauna regularly, which is you know a staple of their culture, um, have lower risks of dementia. And it's, and it's a sliding scale. The people that go four to five times per week, as opposed to one or two times per week, have much lower levels of dementia mm -hmm. uh, in the population. So I think there's, you know, the sky's the limit. We just need more studies. So I'll be a, 
you know, new investigators and graduate students out there looking for something to study. You know, the field of heat therapy is in its infancy, so we need lots of people to, to take on all these projects. Yeah, they should contact you. Huh? So yeah. that's the really interesting thing as well about the sauna, because that's obviously uncomfortable. I hate saunas. I don't know some people like them, but it's uncomfortable. So people obviously do do things to do with getting hot that are uncomfortable. I mean, this sauna thing, though, is, is, is something that's been around for, forever. So are people doing using those studies much? So, you know, when you think, how am I going to look at this? How do you choose between oh, the hot tub and a sauna? And I guess the hot tub's also going to have effects on your fluid balance and things like that as well. So. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of where the field started versus where the field's going. So the studies were initially the hot water immersion. Now more and more groups are looking at sauna and infrared sauna. Um, you know, the, the, the time for sauna it, to get that increase in core temperature, it takes a little longer because you don't have that direct convective effect of the water, but uh -huh. you're going to get some of the same benefits, certainly with sauna, and some of those studies are starting to come out. And what's exciting is, you know, something that's been around for a long time in the athletic world is the use of diathermy uh, to directly heat the muscles. Um, so Rob Hudel's group out of BYU has done some really cool studies where they're just heating the muscle and they can show a prevention of muscle atrophy uh, with, you know, sort of a unweighting model of inactivity. Okay. And so with just eight days of diathermy, I think that's how long they did it for, they can, they can inhibit muscle atrophy and also protect um, skeletal muscle mitochondria. So okay. some pretty cool stuff with just well, direct heating. I, I keep I keep realizing you say cool and I say cool. We're talking about heat, so we've sort of got it back to fun. But they are cool studies. So that's interesting because I was thinking about that earlier. How much is the core temperature increase and how much is the temperature in the muscle per se? So you're saying they just heat the muscle and they get the effect. So it's not necessarily a systemic thing. Yeah. And that's what's exciting about the field right now is more and more people are doing that. And uh, Stephen Marrow, who's down at U University of North Texas, is doing a really cool study where he's heating just the lower legs, so knee down in the hot water, almost like hot water buckets, mm -hmm. and older populations and bringing down blood pressure just by doing that. So I think there's all kinds of range for, for utilizing heat depending on what outcome you're looking for. Oh, so that's really weird because, yeah, I was talking about, so when you have the core temperature, you're heating up the whole body. So I was thinking if you heat just the muscle or, you know, the leg, you would have effects just on that leg, which is interesting. But you're saying if you heat just the, the muscle or the leg without affecting the core temperature, you're still affecting your blood pressure. Yeah, which gets back to your point earlier about, you know, the differences with exercise and heat. And, you know, with exercise, you are having this activation in the muscle where you're, you know, using ATP and things like that. You've got this demand, supply demand thing going that, you know, it puzzles me what's going on with the heat. But it suggests that maybe the activation of the blood flow, what's happening in the smooth muscle, all of that is having some other, you know, systemic effect. If you yes. think about the dilation of the muscles in the lower limbs, I mean, those are pretty big vascular beds. And so that may be enough to see an effect in the whole body. Uh, especially with blood pressure. I guess the other thing is uh, myokines, you know, so... So again, people at home, myokines are, are proteins released from the muscle, basically. So we know with exercise, you get all sorts of myokines released um, that affect other tissues. And we know now that you know, the liver's releasing things, adipokines and all sorts of stuff. All these different organs are releasing things. I guess if you're heating the muscle, then there's the blood flow effects. But also, I wonder if the muscle's releasing any sort of myokines. Are people looking at that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is an area that we're looking at, actually. And um, Mark Fabrio's group, again, who's always on the cutting edge of all these things, you know, Mark's looking at this. So there's actually a lot of work being done now where people are looking at the release of exosomes or extracellular vesicles from the muscle. So these myokines that you're talking about, they can travel in these vesicles, which are produced in all tissues of the body. But when they're produced from the muscle, you know, I call them like a little bubble or something that comes out of the muscle. It yeah. contains everything that is inside that muscle. Mm -hmm. And guess what they contain? Heat shock proteins. They, so, 
Yep. So we are actually studying that. What is in those vesicles? We know there's heat shock proteins in there. Where are they going with heat and with exercise? And can they have beneficial effects in other parts of the body? And that's, you know, a growing area of research as well. Okay. So if we just go back to the muscle, right? So we're, we're, we're talking about, well, I always think about muscle, but exercise, I was going to say exercise is muscle, but that's not, that's totally wrong. Um, you know, it's heart, lungs, every tissue. But if we just think about muscle for a minute, um, I just want to think again about mechanisms. So when the muscle's contracting, yeah, so you've got, if we just focus on the temperature changes, what's actually turning on that heat? Well, actually, I shouldn't just say temperature changes because you said earlier, it's not just the temperature. What's actually turning on the heat shock proteins? Do you know? And and what is the signal like, like right down there, you know, at the protein level? You know what I mean? Is it, because I, I interacted with Philip Hooper at one stage because he was hypothesizing nitric oxide, which is a gas which is produced during contraction and muscle, which I've done studies on, he was thinking that might be activating heat shock proteins. Do we know what's sort of happening down at that molecular level? Well, I, I know that what turns on the expression of these heat shock proteins is the activation of heat shock factor one, which is the major transcription factor. And it's kept in an inactive state when the proteins are all sort of just dormant and not active. And then it's, it's, it's turned on and then it, it goes to the uh, nuclei where it helps transcribe new, it turns on, um, you know, signals to make new heat shock proteins. And so when those heat shock proteins then are high, they actually then inhibit the activation of that transcription factor. Now, what, what I don't know as well is what comes before, before that HSF1 activation, mm -hmm. you know, what level of you know, are there heat, you know, nerve receptors, things like that. Um, I imagine there's a step in there that that is involved as well. And I'm not sure that much has been done to look at that again, comparing say heat versus exercise and so on. Yeah, so that's where we was talking about nitric oxide. And we actually did a little bit, we haven't published it yet, but we, we, we gave like um, nitric oxide donors and, and nitric oxide synthase inhibitors and things like that and looked at heat shock protein. So we, have to, we just have to wait to see if that ever comes out. But um, yeah, so the heat shock, pro, uh, heat shock factor one, I know that gets like phosphorylated. So again, for the, for the people in the, in the audience. So basically you've got proteins, but they can, the, the proteins themselves can be activated or inhibited by other things interacting with them. So one is phosphorylation when you add a phosphate yeah. So do we know what sort of phosphorylates heat shock protein, you know, what causes the heat phosphorylation of heat shock, heat shock? Do we know what causes the phosphorylation of heat shock factor one and like the time cause? So is it you know, during exercise, for example, is so rather than thinking about after exercise and turning on, you know, the nucleus and messenger RNA and whatever, during the actual exercise, do you know, is there, is there stuff going on as heat shock? factor one being phosphorylated is it being translocated in the nucleus or whatever maybe people don't know this i don't know <coughs> sorry um i'm trying to think in terms of exercise what we know about that um we know that there are kinases like for example um, gsk3 ikk beta some kinases that keep that heat shock factor one in its unphosphorylated state. And when they're removed, it gets phosphorylated. So you could imagine that those kinases would be activated, say with heat or exercise, to remove that inhibition and then turn on the HSF1. Yeah, because I guess I'm wondering, you know, because um, we're talking about expression. So, you know, you have the heat, you have, or they have exercise, and then, you know, hours later, there's an increase in heat shock protein 72 or whatever. I guess I'm right. wondering what's happening during the actual exercise and the heat, but I guess there's, there's more to be known. I, you know, maybe that they get phosphorylated and then it translocates the nucleus and then this turns on this and that. It's, it's the sort of stuff that we were doing. And I know you were doing, I think I looked at your highest um, cited paper ever, I think was PGC1-alpha. So, you know, you mentioned mitochondrial biogenesis. So PGC1-alpha is a big regulator of that. And it's the same sort of thing, I guess, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So there's a, you know, it's it's what a lot of times I spin my wheels which direction to go. That's I'm interested in understanding all those pathways, 
And I'm also really interested in seeing what the translation of these studies are. So, you know, if you only had all the time in the day to, to go both directions, but. Yeah, yeah, because I, I know, because I when I looked you up, I saw that you, PGC1-alpha, which is a master regular mitochondrial biogenesis, which is, you know, the, the idea, um, is increased with exercise. And, and this is a mitochondrial thing. So you've touched on quite a few times how heat shock proteins affect the mitochondria. So, so what, what goes on there? Do they increase this PGC1-alpha or...? Um, so we just did a study um, published a year or so ago uh, with my last graduate student, Alex von Schulze, and that paper is published in Function, and it actually was in the liver with heat, but it was one of these, you know, I'm really proud of this project. It was very mechanistic, uh, looking at the effects of heat in the liver, and, you know, it was one of these studies that you just, you always want to do, and then you think, well, either I can't get this funded or I can't get it published, but, but we managed to do it, so we did a time course of what happens with acute heat, everything from immediately after heat up to two hours. And then we also did a chronic repeated bouts of heat over time in these mouse models to really see what's happening to the mitochondria as a result of this heat. So getting at this idea of the stress response and what it was doing. And it was really interesting. And I, I compare this to what we know about exercise, one bout of exercise versus repeated you know, exercise training. And, and that information just wasn't out there on what uh, for heat. And so as, in terms of the mitochondria, what we found was the acute response really is a stress response. It was decreasing mitochondrial respiration, decreasing all of the mitochondrial enzyme activity and okay. degrading mitochondria on, the, on a very acute one heat um, response. But then over time, repeated heat bouts resulted in improved mitochondrial respiration, improved mitochondrial efficiency. And then and the mechanism that was going on there was that of mitophagy, so the degradation of mitochondria. So we were turning on mitophagy with one bout, and that was getting rid of any kind of damaged or less efficient mitochondria, such that over time, when we gave the heated bouts every 72 hours over three weeks, then all that was left was the healthy mitochondria and they became much more efficient. And we did everything from, you know, some RNA-seq analysis to look at all these different pathways that were being turned on in these two different acute versus chronic settings. And so we now understand a lot more about the way that heat induces a stress response, much like exercise does, but that over time, that's a beneficial stress response. So I, I thought that it, it turned out really great and we're very proud of that work. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So initially, so just to unpack that a bit, so you're saying with one um, exposure to heat or or some stimulus that turns on heat shock proteins, it actually downregulates the mitochondrial function and enzyme levels. And then with repeated, then you get the upregulation, which is what you want, the improvements in function or whatever. Now that's that that's a weird one because you know we know one bout of exercise increases, for example, insulin sensitivity. And this has been this debate that, you know, like our oh, mitochondrial function and insulin sensitivity sort of go hand in hand. But, but yeah. this is actually quite an interesting one where it might dissociate. So, so with the one bout of heat, it downregulates the mitochondria. Does it also downregulate insulin sensitivity or does it increase it? Because this is actually a nice way to tease it apart. Yeah, that's a good question. So we didn't look at it, we've looked at markers of insulin in the liver, but we've done those studies in muscle and one heat bout in muscle does activate and increase glucose uptake, much like one bout of exercise. So again, okay. this may be tissue specific differences. This could be differences in actual, you know, glucose pathways versus mitochondrial pathways. Um, I think, you know, even though exercise improves glucose, uh, insulin stimulate glucose uptake, you're also getting all kinds of muscle protein damage with one bout of exercise, right? And you're turning on, um, you know, different oxidant, you know, you've got reactive oxygen species being generated, things that you could call a stress response. In the same time, you're getting a beneficial glucose response. So I think there's just lots of things going on and it depends mm -hmm. what you're looking for, but. And there's lots more to study, yeah, because I, I, I did hear you say liver, but I didn't quite get it in my head. So yeah, this this thing about the 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 one um, lot of heat downregulating downregulating the mitochondria that's the liver. So we don't know about the muscle, I guess. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I guess another thing is what about washout period? So you know, if you've if you've had the heat exposure and you've had these 
great adaptations. How often do you have to do it? How long does it take to sort of wear off? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did some initial studies in the rodent where we would activate PHOP proteins with that whole body immersion and we would look at how long the protein expression took to, to go back down. Again, getting to this idea of there's an inhibitory response that these heat shock proteins get turned off when, uh, when they're high, um, the activation is, is turned down. So we found that uh, the protein expression levels stayed up for say three to four days um, and then you could reactivate. And so initially that's why we staged our, our heat treatments about a week apart so that we were getting a full, you know, we would get that response to be completely down and then we would activate again. More recently, we did a study where we heated every 72 hours, again, in the rodent. Um, the human studies, you know, those really, I don't know that those have been done. So looking at heat shock proteins, for example, in the muscle, which is where we're most interested in them, would require taking multiple muscle biopsies over time course, yeah. which no one wants to do. So. I, uh, I don't know that those studies have been done. We have looked at activation of heat shock proteins um, in, in muscle in humans 24 hours after heat, and we don't see them still up at that point. So, so we're not sure if we missed the window, we were too early or too late. Um, but uh, those, those type of studies about how long the protein is up or how long the heat effects last really probably are gonna to have to be looked at on a tissue by tissue basis and a population basis uh, to really understand. Okay. Interestingly, you saying population basis, it makes me think of, um, I had Claude Bouchard on a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, he was talking about all sorts of things, but responders and non-responders and things. Um, does everyone respond to heat? That's a great question. I don't think we know. Uh, everyone has these heat check proteins. Everyone has probably various levels of them. I would imagine that they vary based on things like, you know, uh, muscle fiber type. Uh, we know they vary with age. We know they can vary with chronic disease. Uh, mm. So, you know, there have been some studies, at least in animal models, looking at um, heat shock proteins with diabetes, and we know the expression levels are down, um, but they are still inducible. So I would imagine that even in people with different disease states that they can still be induced, you know, activated. But whether or not we see sort of a non-responder type um, population similar to what we know you can see with exercise, I, I imagine we will, maybe not non-responders, but not as, the effects are not as, as much, yeah. not as effective. Okay, now what, one thing I was thinking as well when you were saying that was, um, you, you said earlier on something about you can eat sort of, a bad diet or whatever, and then just have 20 minutes of, uh, you know, uh, exposure to a hot tub, you know, un relatively uncomfortable, but, you know, whatever you said, 45 minutes or whatever. We don't necessarily want to suggest that to people. Is that right? Yes. I always say when I give talks, I am not an MD. I am a PhD. I'm not prescribing this. We're a long ways from that. And it's definitely the case that there may be some populations that this isn't safe for. You know, we know that heat shock proteins have been studied. They do strange things in cancer cells, for example. Um, they actually are activated in cancer cells, so you might want to be cautious there. Um, neuropathy, where maybe the peripheral pain and heat receptors are, are not as effective, you know, maybe there's some risk there. So definitely we need to figure out, you know, which populations, you know, might be uh, less safe for these interventions, um, for sure. Oh, okay. All right. I, I wasn't actually, I was actually talking about saying people on a, on a high fat diet or eating crappy food, we don't want to oh. be saying you can do that. That's fine. As long as you jump in a hot tub, maybe, you know, once a week. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, no, it's similar to, you can't outrun a bad diet, right? You can't outheat you a bad diet, I would say. There you go. All right. And yeah. you touched on, uh, age there as well. So is there any sort of, uh, interesting thing going on there with aging? Yeah, so limited knowledge about this in terms of what's out there in the literature, but uh, we did an aging rodent study and we found that we could activate the heat shock proteins just as well. And we found that we could induce um, a glucose uptake with a one heat bout in aged rats. 
Okay. And, um, you know, there's some other literature out there suggesting that the heat shock protein levels are lower with age, uh, but you can still get that activation and induction. And certainly we're doing some studies now in older individuals and they tolerate the heat really well. Okay. And again, whether or not we'll see as much effect on some of the outcomes that we're looking on, you know, we don't know yet, but I'm hopeful that we will. Even this fits with, um, you know, there's more and more coming out that with, with aging, responses to exercise are quite often normal. It's just they don't exercise as much. So, you know, I think there's more intact than we necessarily think. One thing that's been in the back of my mind is, is we're kind of assuming, I guess, that the heat shock proteins are what are having these effects. So when you have heat, you get the heat shock proteins and then you get the mitochondria, the insulin sensitivity, the muscle remodeling, whatever. Is there anything else going on with the heat? So you touched on blood flow at one stage. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. My bias is obviously that heat shock proteins are the main mediators of all these effects, but that's a very good point that there could be other things happening. Uh, in terms of blood flow, you know, again, the heat shock proteins may be involved, but it could be, you know, a nitrous oxide uh, mediated mechanism that is independent of heat shock proteins that, you know, improves things like shear stress and and, and vascular function. Um, there are some studies suggesting that you're changing membrane permeability with the heat. Things like um, lipid bilayers, uh, lipid rafts, uh, things like that that could be changed with the heat that may have effects on things, you know, like glucose uptake for, for sure. So definitely think that there are other possibilities at work. Um, just don't know for sure. Yeah. I guess it's like, again, everything's complicated in physiology and exercise and heat. I'm sure there's more going on than we realize. One thing I'd like to ask you about is, is you know, people tend to think, you know, you do research, you get these great findings, you write a paper and off you go. But things don't always go to plan, right? Um, often you've got to troubleshoot, you've got to work out what's going on or the study doesn't work out or whatever. Is it, Could you give us an example of where that's happened with you? Or maybe everything's always gone to plan. <laughs> Definitely not always gone to plan. Uh, we could do a whole another hour long podcast if you have yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of things we've done that, you know, I would have loved to have seen come, you know, to fruition. Uh, you know, there were things we wanted to do where we're um, isolating the skeletal muscle and heating just the leg um, and getting at this idea of tissue specific versus a systemic effect when we were working with our rodent model. You know, we used to take uh, heating pads and, and take them apart and try to make a mini rodent heat coil, things like that, you know, to, to try to get at, you know, things like that that we've, yeah. yeah, things like that that we've tried to jerry-rig in the, in the lab to get at some of those questions and some of, you know, none of those ever worked very well. Um, certainly, we've done some studies that we hoped would, would show bigger effects. Uh, we we spent a lot of time working on a um, tissue-specific uh, knockout model of, of one of the heat shock proteins, and we knocked it out in the liver and didn't make a whole lot of difference. Hmm. And getting back to your question earlier about redundant systems, and there's a lot of these heat shock proteins. So even though some studies, you know, Mark Fabrio's group has shown that if you overexpress heat shock protein 72 in the muscle, you get 50% increase in mitochondria and you get these mice that can run for twice as long on a treadmill and things like that. So we thought for sure we would see an effect in the liver. And we saw very little effect on mitochondria in the liver when we knocked out that heat shock protein. So that was very disappointing. We did see some nuanced effects on glucose overall, um, whole body glucose regulation. So we do think it plays a role, but Definitely in the liver, it didn't seem to play as critical of a role as it did in the muscle. And that was definitely disappointing. Okay. Well, I guess you've mentioned the liver a few times. So what was your thinking there? Because I, I know you started off, you said um, you were looking at muscle. You, I, I think you said your initial studies before you went to John Lossie's lab was, why don't you tell us about that, your muscle, and then how you ended up being interested in the liver, I guess. Yeah, so I consider myself a muscle physiologist. I did a lot of single fiber work as a graduate student. Um, I've got 
deduced into liver physiology uh, from a colleague, you know, these collaborations, you know how that goes. Yeah. Uh, John Tifo uh, came to KU from Mizzou and came down the hall and started doing all this great work in the liver. And it just seemed like a good avenue. A lot of people weren't looking at the liver and heat shock proteins, but we know that the liver is very responsive to exercise. And so it just seemed like, and, and there's a lot of cool tools you can do in the liver that you can't do in muscle. You can get overexpression or ablation of a protein by just injecting in the tail vein with the liver. And you can't do that in muscle. It's a lot harder to get a tissue specific change in protein expression, for example. So there were some tools that were available to us that allowed us to do those studies. And, and we're still doing some of that. Um, and, and I think it's interesting in heat shock proteins and, and heat in general, we don't know much about the way the different tissues respond. So I just think mm -hmm. it was a natural transition. And we've also done some work in the adipose tissue for the same reason. So that's an interesting point then. So if you think about insulin sensitivity, you know, again, I tend to be a muscle person. So I think about, you know, exercise or heat, you know, increasing insulin sensitivity by affecting the muscle because the muscle is the major site of glucose uptake. But is there, what do we know about the liver there? So, you know, because the, the liver is also insulin sensitive and, you know, um, diet and exercise affect liver's insulin sensitivity. What do we know there? About? Right. Right. So we know that diet and exercise impact the ability of the liver to, you know, produce glucose and to, you know, um, maintain whole body glucose homeostasis. And so, you know, our interest shifted to fatty liver disease and how exercise and heat might impact fatty liver. Um, yeah. And so we know that a lot of the same processes insulin action, mitochondrial function that we think of in muscle, you know, a lot of those same systems are in play in the liver. But again, with a slightly different purpose, right? The muscle is taking up glucose, the liver is producing glucose. So you, mm -hmm. you could imagine that those same pathways are having slightly different effects depending on, you know, the, the model that you're using. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we'll start to finish up. One thing I was thinking about, well, I came across uh, someone talking about their book. I can't remember their name now, but they, they were talking about how we're so comfortable nowadays. It's, it's, it's the, the the problem of too much comfort or something. There's a, there's a book about that. And I was just wondering about with us, you know, we're, we're so used to being like plus or minus one degree, you know, like you, you put the air con on, you put the heating on, you're just always in this perfect sort of thing. My feeling is that that can't be good for you because we know that heat heat has beneficial effects, but we also know we haven't talked about it. But cold can also have beneficial effects, you know, with you know brown fat and beige fat and whatever. What do you think about that? Do you think we should be less comfortable, you know, thermo, in terms of thermoregulation? Yeah, I do, and I think you know I like to think of heat, cold, and exercise as all stress responses that can be good for you. And, you know, going back to my favorite, you know, uh, phrase that I've been using this whole time, cold stress turns on heat shock proteins too. So the reason they're, they're misnamed because they're stress proteins. So cold stress can turn them on as well. So, yeah, I think that, you know, we, we've sort of been conditioned to think of exercise as being good for us, but it's also definitely a stress and something that can be quite uncomfortable, but yeah, it's good for us. So I think, you know, we need to shift towards thinking that way about environmental stressors, about heat. You know, we battle with this idea as I'm writing grants on some of these applications of heat therapy. You know, I've, I've run into this idea that too much heat is not a good thing, right? You know, you, everyone that's ever gotten into a hot tub at a hotel sees those warning signs. Don't stay in longer than 15 minutes, right? We are conditioned to think that that is harmful. And really, it's just uncomfortable. Yeah, so we've obviously, this is probably playing a role in why everything's so messed up, why we've got so much obesity and so much heart disease and so much cancer and everything, because we're not meant to be comfortable the whole time. We're meant to be hunter-gathering, so actually being active, trying to get food, and then, you know, shivering in the cave, you know, <laughs> other times we're hot and we're just too yeah. comfortable. Yeah, I think that, yeah. that book, maybe I should have a look at that book, whatever it is. All right. Yeah, well, these are physiological responses. Absolutely. All right. So, is there anything that we? I think we've covered a fair bit. Is there anything you'd like to get out before we we finish up? It's been great. Yeah. No. When are you going to get your hot tub? 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've got a, I've got a bath, but um, I, what is the difference? Hang on, a bath and a hot tub. A hot tub is when you can turn on the bubbles, I guess. Yeah, and the hot tub usually has some kind of, uh, you know, motor that's going to keep the the heat up. Oh, like circulating, know. circulating. Yeah, ah. and keep that steady temperature versus a bath. You know, once you've run the water, it's going to start cooling down. So that's that's that the boundary difference. layer. You also get that boundary layer. You got to keep moving it. So you know, when you've when you put you hurt your ankle and you put it in ice, if you just leave it there, it doesn't feel that cold. You've got to keep it moving around you. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay, maybe I need to get a help. I'll talk to my wife about it. There you go. It sounds good. <laughs> okay, well, thanks Thanks again for coming on. Um, actually, are you okay if people contact you? Like, uh, like on, are you on Twitter or? Um, yeah, sure. All right, so how would yeah. I find you? On, on Twitter, I'm at Paige Geiger, PhD. Yeah, so All right, cool. there's a lot of good science on Twitter these days. So I try yeah. to keep up a little bit. And there's also a lot of crap on there as well, actually. That's that's <laughs> part of the plan with this podcast is, is instead of people getting their information from influencers, why not get it from the experts such as yourself? Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. This is oh, fun. Thank you. I've learned a lot. So it's been great. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye. Bye.